All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 480. Jason Lingren is with me, as is Nathan Riley, who is a past guest, as is Marin Green, who is also a past guest. You can look them up. I think the last time we touched with Marin, it was in regard to episode 434. There was a 13 Moons course that she offered that has been apparently a hit from those who have taken it. Basically, what we're going to talk about today, well, in an overarching way, is birth and death. And uh, one of the first bullet points we're going to touch on here is the idea of uh, dying in a hospital or dying in the house. And as people who have followed along here know, my whole life, my trajectory and where I am and what I'm doing was completely changed to ensure that both my father in 2005 and my mother around last Easter died in their own beds. I can't imagine now that I look back on it, uh, having seen that go a different way and how traumatizing it would have been if that would have gone a different way. But anyhow, welcome, Jason. And a rather pleasant good morning. All right, let's jump in. Welcome, Nathan, and welcome, Marin. Thank you. Thank you for having us again. It's a huge pleasure and honor to be brought back on the show. So thank you. Oh, it's great to have you guys. We're getting a little bit of a late start because of technical difficulties. Zoom is updating today in case everyone didn't notice that. They're trying to force a few things down the pipe, but that is the way of digital things. So we're going to jump in here. Do you guys want to just hit the bullet points verbatim? Is that how you want to address? Hmm. I think we can start with Marin's contributions and then we can kind of fold in some of the points that I brought up as well, because our vision here is is for a, a sort of a naturalistic way of birthing, way of dying all in one place, but it really is is our, our first and foremost focuses on uh, reskilling birth workers in some primary skills that have been completely lost. And, and uh, I would even say OBGYNs have become de-skilled in things like breach and twins birth. But then because my other area of expertise, as I mentioned on the show, is, is death and dying, and Marin and I both kind of see these as two sides of the same coin. I don't want to speak too much for Marin. Uh, we figured that this would really be a great way to illustrate through a, sing- a central location, a retreat space, if you will, where we can have birthing and dying all autonomously done, immersed in nature. So I'll pass it over to Marin to maybe start by talking a little bit about that, and then we can get into the philosophical weeds thereafter. Before we jump in here, guys, let's start with Nathan. Just quickly tell folks about yourself and your contact information, website, whatever you may want to put out there. Sure. My website is belovedholistics.com. I have a, a podcast where we talk about all of these types of things. It's called The Holistic OBGYN, and I'm actually going to be releasing a big course to complement Marin's work. It's called The Born Free Method. It's going to be from start to finish, really engaging with autonomy and childbirth, accepting radical responsibility for your decisions and for the outcomes. So all of that can be found in my website. Every time I hear those words, born free, I flash back to the late 60s, early 70s. But uh, Aaron, <laughs> it's on you. Can you quickly introduce yourself and give out the contacts you'd like to give out? Sure. I'm Marin. I'm a mama to 10 and a midwife. Indiebirth.org is our main site where you can find 13 moons. You can find access to my podcast called Taking Back Birth. Indiebirthmidwiferyschool.org is our other site where we are training radical midwives all over the world. Uh, We have a new program coming out for practicing midwives that want to learn the radical way called Elevate. And probably the best way to get that would just be check out our Instagram account, Indiebirth. All right, go ahead, Marin. Lead us in where you want to uh, start here. We're so honored to be here, especially because we know you all were interested and supportive of this new idea we have. 
And it's an idea and a vision that I've held close to my heart for so long. Uh, This idea we're calling the Indie Birth Sanctuary and Center for Sacred Life. (sighs) It's a lot to explain, but it has come out of the need for several things in this world that really come down to freedom, freedom of choice, freedom of life, and also this other side of training more radical midwives around the world to support the freedom that many women and families are looking for. So ideally, this vision is an actual physical location, and that has yet to be manifested. We are open to kind of where the universe thinks this should be, but we're imagining a really large property out in nature. We find uh, that it is so crucial that women, especially at their birthing time, are close to source. Uh, They can put their feet on the ground. They can get in the water. And so this physical location will be a sanctuary, a free place for women to come from all over the world to birth their star seeds. These are the most special babies incarnating right now. And they are speaking to their parents and they want to come in in such a sacred space. So uh, that's the first mission of the Center for Sacred Life. And then to go along with it, uh, Margot, my coworker, and I have had the Indie Birth Midwifery School for many years. It's an online program. It's been super successful all over the world. However, the one piece that is still missing is hands-on learning and actual experience in the ways that we midwife, in the ways that we attend births. And so the Indie Birth Sanctuary will also be a training ground for our students to come and to witness birth in the ways that we teach and to support mamas in breach and twins. That's kind of uh, the extra element that Nathan was speaking of earlier. We have Nathan on board and another obstetrician, Dr. Stu Fishbein. And the goal is to train the midwives sufficiently in these skills that are slowly becoming extinct. And again, make it this safe place for women to come, whether they have a head down baby or a breech baby or twins. Um, Ultimately, this center, and Nathan, I think will speak better to this, will include the sacred rite and passage of death because they are two sides of the same coin, uh, because so many of the same principles apply. That's the ultimate vision. So Uh, That is what we have put out into the world in this new year, 2023, and we are just excitedly and anxiously awaiting the ways that this will manifest so that we can get the show on the road and and start doing it. So basically, you're looking at opening up a major facility that doesn't charge the people that need the services to bring new life into the world and to help life that's about to go away depart the world. It's a heck of a thing. Jason and I are about to do an episode on the so-called Kali Yugas. Uh, One school of thought has us down around the corner from the descending Kali Yuga, uh, and actually has us out of the ascending Kali Yuga, which is the worst time, according Mm. to that system. And it's interesting when I begin to focus my mind on all the things that are coming, like what what you were involved in would match perfectly with the idea that the virtue of the world is increasing now. Nathan, what do you want to add? Well, I want to add as a person who was born of the medical system and having been through so much death and so much birth in an institutionalized way, 
you know, as I've spoken about and as Marin speaks so eloquently about, we've we've turned these processes, birth and dying, into pathologies in, in and of themselves. And sometimes death even happens in birth. And what we've been able to demonstrate in our institutions uh, through the the what we call the modern maternity care system, whereby the hospital advertises safety, is that women go there and their partners go there to have babies. They have this cascade of interventions, all in the name of quote safety. And, and what happens thereafter is that women, even if they have undisturbed, natural, physiologic, whatever you want to call it, births in the hospital, they're oftentimes left traumatized by the experience. It may have been a non-consensual exam, maybe a non-consensual major abdominal surgery like a C-section, which, by the way, a third of babies in the United States are born by C-section. That's so dystopian to both Marin and I. And oftentimes those C-sections are happening after a cascade of interventions that were never really justified in the first place. So what we end up doing is we put people on this medical train. They don't seem to be able to get off the train because of assent or consent or, you know, whatever the mechanism, you know, was at play when they entered the hospital. And you end up actually doing more harm than good, all for the name of, quote, safety. Like we have to check the cervix to, to make sure the baby's okay. We have to do this monitoring to make sure the baby's okay. It takes the human person out of this experience, which Marin and I both agree is a rite of passage. This is a sacred process. This is a transformation of spirit. And if we're going to treat it like a pathology and uh, the consumer continues to demand this, you know, safety in the hospital, then, then we continue to invest more and more money into clinical research and whatnot to minimize that one bad outcome while creating all these other bad outcomes that are immeasurable. You know, the woman's experience in giving birth, the baby's experience of not being held immediately after the birth. So we see those exact same, you could replace the word birth with death there. Of course, many, many people don't want to have a lot of interventions at the end of their life. They want to be able to die in peace and do that internal work, connect with some greater power, whatever it is that, that their spiritual beliefs are. And instead, they're being intubated, they're being ventilated, they're being um, compressed through CPR and whatnot. And it ends up resulting in a lot of trauma for the family members. So what if we were able to sh demonstrate that this could be done in a much more naturalistic way, not to throw caution to the wind, because we're all invested in keeping people seen, for them to feel safe and warm and held and, and witnessed. But we can do this without completely throwing away their value systems and their belief systems in the process. And that's what we hope that the sanctuary will, will provide is a model for how this can be done better and far more in alignment with people uh, who are seeking these services. You know, there's astonishing reality about what's just happened in our world with regard to the new life coming in. And I think Marin kind of gave it a nod on the way in. Uh, many of the children we're seeing come into the world now are astonishingly advanced compared to yeah. what we were used to. Uh, in the 80s, maybe they were called indigo children. It was thought that they were few and far between. By the 90s, uh, it became commonplace. Then in my family in the late 90s, each of my three nephews, all astonishing beyond what I had expected in certain ways. And what we find, and we've covered this in so many episodes, even the legal episodes, trying to help people arm themselves to go into this kind of cold surgical medical environment where people are pushing their will. Mm -hmm. uh, what we found is that the majority of people were unsatisfied. They looked at it as traumatizing. We met a number of people who did the first birth in the typical mainstream way and then moved away from it. And the second one was further detached. And maybe the third birth was completely done at home. Now, before we go forward, for everybody listening, 
if you want to catch up on the path that led us here with Nathan and Marin, uh, Nathan's past episodes are 415 and 430. Marin's was 472. I'm sorry, 372.5. Go ahead, Marin. Okay. Looks like my episode was 382.5, according to Rose. Thank you. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I did misspeak. So I said 372.5. It's actually 382.5. Just so everybody knows, when you go to the website, if you mouse over the full episode, immediately below it is find a show. It's a double-sided search. On the left is numbers and keywords. On the right is a person's name. And it works pretty well, actually. Anyhow, there we go. Sorry about that, Mary. Yeah. Well, are we continuing about the sanctuary? We could jump over to the bullets. Do you guys want to run through the bullets? Yeah, why don't we why don't we run through the bullets and then at the very end, Marin, why don't we illustrate our vision, our grand vision? Because yeah. I think it's important to have some context for why this is a problem and and what we're actually trying to accomplish here. This isn't just another eco village where it's we're going to sit around and sing kumbaya. That may be a part of it. You know, we may uh, <laughs> <laughs> we may do some singing and dancing. Uh, of course, you know, in our worlds, that's that's like a part of having a baby and that's a part of living life to its fullest. But I think it's helpful to have a little bit of context as to why this is so necessary nowadays. All right, I'll lead us in. Uh, in my lifetime, what I saw was both of my my father's mother and father died in a hospital. It was a terrible way to go. And not only that, that was back in the 70s, early 70s and later 70s. And what we saw was an effort to keep someone alive who was clearly dying. That's one of the things. But the bullet point goes as follows. Most Americans don't want to die in a hospital. Up to 90% of cancer patients, when asked, express a desire to die at home. Then there's a sub point here that says 40% die in a hospital from all kinds of different causes. Who wants to pick up there? I'll start there, Marion, because I think this, this bleeds yeah. well into, into the preferences. So so when, when we talk to a, a person about their end-of-life preferences, you know, there's these concepts uh, that are illustrated through things like advanced directives. I want these things. I don't want these things. I don't want CPR. I do want resuscitation, whatever. All of these advanced directives are meant to illustrate a person's values. Well, in the birth world, we have a birth plan. And birth plans are not meant to be like, here's the flight path. Here's the, here's the plan. Here's how I'm going to have a baby because that's completely out of our control. But what a real birth plan and what Marin does and, and all midwives who, who practice traditional midwifery do is they develop a relationship with this person in order to understand what their values are. And then once they understand what their values are, then we just align ourselves as, as, as people who care for them, whether we're doctors, nurses, family members, or whatever. Now that we know what their values and beliefs are, we can help them tell that story going forward. So these documents like advanced directives and birth plans on the birth side they're meant to illustrate more, you know, what doesn't come to the eye when you just look at the, the electronic medical record. It doesn't come to the eye when you look at imaging or biopsies or whatever else. If a person has cancer and you go to an oncologist, they're going to try to pound in the nail because they have a hammer and they like to use it. Their hammer is cytotoxic chemotherapy. They also have radiation. They also have surgery. If a person's 95 with heart failure and they develop a melanoma, do they want to be operated on? Do they want to get all this chemo? So we don't know the, how to answer that. We don't know how to help them answer that until we understand who they are. And increasingly, and fortunately, one of the silver linings of COVID-19 was that 
women were not routinely going into a clinical setting to have their babies checked on by an OBGYN. Every two to four weeks, most women are going to be invited back to the clinic. They have to bring all of their kids with them. Imagine Marin with, with nine other children. I got to bring all my kids to the waiting room, sit in there. Then they ask me some domestic violence questions. Then they check my blood pressure. Then they you know, spend five minutes with the doctor and then they go home. The insurance pays for this visit. The insurance pays for the ultrasound. There's all this billing stuff that happens. Was it really necessary? Well, in COVID, they weren't being invited into the clinic. They were doing telehealth check-ins and women started to realize, oh, so you mean it's not necessary for me to drag my butt to the clinic every single day? I'm tired. I'm achy. It's not necessary to do that. And we didn't have a bunch of babies' heads popping off in, in the uterus. You know, it was, it was, it was uh, I think, revealing for people. And the home birth rates started going up, including in my own life. My wife and I had a home birth because we mostly because we didn't want to have a swab stuck down our nose and for possibly the baby to be separated from us if one of us tested positive, which was happening in hospitals around the country. And for the same reason that my wife and I chose to have a home birth, other women realized, oh man, maybe it would actually be better to just have it in the safety and the comfort of my own home with my couch and my bathtub and, and all of these things. So, so when you actually elicit a person's preferences, most people nowadays do not want non-consensual vaginal exams, unvalidated monitoring systems, shots in the baby's feet as soon as they come out of the womb. They want to hold their baby. They want to connect with their baby. They want their baby to smell them, to breathe with them. And that doesn't usually happen in the hospital setting, especially in those one-third of babies that are coming by C-section. So the reason that we keep bringing up death and birth is that this same process of getting to know a person's values and beliefs in a cancer diagnosis, for example, people die from all sorts of things, but cancer is a great one. If you have cancer, you don't necessarily need to treat it. In fact, if you treat it, you might get three more months of life over your six months expectancy, but you're going to be sick as a dog now for the entire rest of your life. That may not be the way you want to go. Other people may decide that they want to do it, but we don't know until we elicit what their preferences are. So we can apply the same language, like I said, to birth and death, replacing the word birth with death or giving birth and dying. And, it, and most people are going to just be nodding along. Like, yeah, I would want my care provider, whether it's a midwife or doctor or oncologist, to align the resources and their even conversation with me with the values that I hold, my spiritual values, my personal values, my whole personal story, my finances, everything. But that's not what happens in the medical system. So without eliciting preferences, we really can't do our best job to take care of people. And it should be no surprise that a large portion of our population is starting to lose faith in the hospital system's ability to take care of them. Well, I think the mask was ripped off during COVID when people began to realize that the administrators were actually the doctors. Uh, the doctors had not been, were, were basically not practicing. They were taking directives from people in administration. Lord knows where, where the directives came from above that. And many people, completely were disillusioned with the whole system. Yeah. And I think what I'm hearing from you is for one, see, we covered the legal aspects of this a number of times where people were walking in with affidavits saying, I do not give permission for these things. And, you know, just trying to outline their preference. And even that became a problem in a system that's not prepared to give a damn about your preferences. Right. It got to the point where when finally someone laid the right, basically legal documents down, all of a sudden, 20 nurses became one nurse. And we realized that the reason for that is 
is they'd been handed a legal paper. They knew they could get in trouble if they didn't follow the affidavits and other things. But having a nurse walk in and out of the room every five minutes uh, has the possibility of someone not comprehending what's been done here. And we saw that one nurse was assigned to them. But what this really underlines is that it's a machine and the machine is trained to do what they're directed to do. And as a matter of fact, for we've covered many times, people who don't want certain things have to claw for it. It's almost like, no, we're doing this. And even after they said, I don't want this procedure or that procedure, every few minutes, a different nurse would walk in and try to pull off the same thing, even to the point where we had people who said, you will not give me remdesivir. And they were staying awake, hadn't slept because they were so afraid that if they went to sleep and what was it, Jason, one person we covered actually dozed off for a minute and got a dose yep. after he had directed them not Numerous to do it. Numerous times. And, yeah. And, and I think this is the real underlying problem of what you're pointing at. Uh, are we human beings? Is a new life a special thing? Does the preference, do the parents get to have a say in what's going on here? Because the loss of confidence, it's because this machine, this train is on the tracks and it is almost impossible to deal with. I mean, yeah. am I wrong here? I agree. I can jump in there. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. Nathan, that was, that was great. And this is why neither of us seek to reform this system. I think that's really safe to say. Right. There are so many problems and we could talk for hours about the abuse and the trauma that especially women in birth have suffered. But at the end of the day, and this points back to the sanctuary as well, we are also experiencing a deep remembering. And I can attest to that with the women I walk with, the families I serve, um, these babies that I also feel in communication with that we are completely making something new. And that is the only way forward. That is absolutely the only way forward. So to that end, remembering what it means to be connected to the earth and thereby remembering what it means to be truly healthy in all of the ways where we get our food, you know, um, our fertility, Everything about our physical bodies is a remembering. And on top of that, these women that aren't looking for permission. So this isn't a matter of birth plans and saying, no, I don't want that. These are women that are in the process of remembering the deep wisdom they have. Mm -hmm. And the conversations are just completely different. It's not, I don't want this. I don't want that. It's not even, I want to be at home versus the hospital. Of course, yes, most of them are choosing home birth. Uh, These are women that are saying, I remember how this process goes. Mm. Even if I've never done it before in this life, uh, my ancestors have done it. The women that have come before me, I remember. And I'm in communication with this soul that, as you said, Crow, is so highly advanced and if we're paying attention to what these babies are asking of these women, it is so like exhilarating and beautiful. They are really asking us to remember and to align our energetics with their vibration, which again, um, just puts like so many of the 
<clears throat> matrix conversations out the window because it's a whole new paradigm. We're not seeing birth as a physical process only. Yes, there is a, you know, a physical thing happening, but the women that I see want to engage in uh, this remembering and connecting with their own ancestry, connecting with their history, going deep into their belief systems, working on their patterning, working on their relationships. And so that's the new experience in a sense for me, even as a midwife that's done this for many, many years, is it's a completely different way. Um, I'm, I feel like I'm midwifing in a role now that I didn't even know existed two years ago. And for that, I'm so grateful. So for all the COVID nonsense, I think this is something really beautiful that's come out of it is just this deep, deep sense of remembering who we are and what we are and how we're here to serve. So the underlying principle that you're moving forward with, if I've heard you correctly, is basically there's a machine out there that handles everything medical and it's so broken as to not be fixable, which by common sense means we need to build something new. Uh, And and in the building of something new, uh, you can throw out all the old blueprints, all the things that you didn't appreciate, all these things. And I think part of what I'd like to add is that's true of everything right now. I fully expect that every system that we had all been accustomed to through the 1900s, all the way up to where we are now, uh, those lower vibrational systems all have to go away now. And change is painful, but doesn't it point out that we can do a better job? And in this observation I'm making, do you have any concern that the machine's going to reach back to try to stop you? I noticed you said the services would be free, which I think insulates you to some degree because. just, just because of the legal things we've done, but like the birth certificate and other things like that, do you feel like there's going to be problems in addressing how the system wants things to go and the new paradigm that you're suggesting? Actually, I'm not sure that the services will be free. That's really up for further conversation based on the model that we wind up with. So that's to be seen. I mean, in the ideal world, sure, that would be beautiful. You know, I think there definitely are concerns. And my job in holding the vision, of course, isn't to focus on those things. It's just to hold the energy of this vision. I'm very well aware that the mainstream world, the medical world is not a fan. I mean, I know that. And I've had my own experiences as a midwife that remind me from time to time that what I do really isn't welcome. However, I think the goal in, again, this highest vision, if we're talking about vibration and energy, is to really create something that they don't even understand. And that's my experience kind of on the day-to-day, honestly, of being a midwife. Uh, The way I am in that role is so far outside the mainstream medical system. They kind of don't even know what to do with it because ultimately, and this is the same for the sanctuary, the highest vision is a spiritual project. That's what this is. This isn't like a wannabe hospital. This isn't like we're trying to get away from um, the clause. This is a whole new thing that has never been done before. So again, there may be challenges, but I'm certainly not thinking all of the time about all of the ways it won't work because I've seen with my own eyes that people are ready for this and they want freedom in all of the ways more than they ever have. Well, in the question that I asked, I noticed when we did certain episodes, you know, some of the episodes we've done where babies were born, well, 
as naturally as they can be born. Uh, I feel those are some of the most important episodes that we've done. And the reason is because they represent the hope for the future. They represent the, the possibility that we can start moving forward again. But what, what I noticed is depending on what part of the country uh, they were in, the existing system really pressed hard on them or not so much. And another thing I noticed was the midwives that kind of held their ground seemed to be mostly not messed with. That's not totally true. But anyhow, you want to get in, Nathan? Well, yeah, I wanted to add to this as well that when we're talking about interventions and we're, I mean, let's, let's start by remembering that, you know, there was a Harvard business review that looked at the past 20 years, you know, our, our healthcare expenditures are something like $3 trillion, 70 and about half of that goes towards wages of all employees within the healthcare system. And over the past two decades or so, we've seen an increase in about 75% of that workforce and uh, 95% of those hires have been non-doctor hires. So we, and then at the same time, we've got nonprofit hospital CEOs, uh, Bernard, his last name is Tyson. He's the former CEO of Kaiser Permanente, made $18 million in 2018. So as we're seeing this giant megalomaniacal medical industrial complex, as I call it, grow, there is absolutely no doubt that if we build something that is as disruptive as Marin and I are describing, everybody's going to want to either have a piece of it or they're going to want to shut it down. That is, that is, there's no doubt in my mind that we're going to be up against, you know, some, some serious detractors, right? But having said that, if you can get these CEOs and whatnot in a room together and you actually talk to them about their own births, and I've done this, like I've talked to some really, really critical doctors who are critical of me. I've talked to them one-on-one. I'll even invite them, you know, they, they call me out on Instagram or whatever, and I invite them to have a phone call. And what I remind them of is that when a baby is born, all the way from the moment of conception, you've got oxytocin flooding the system. This is the love hormone. It's this giant molecule produced in the hypothalamus. It's excreted into the bloodstream as a hormone and as a neurotransmitter in the nervous system as a connecting uh, hormone. It's, It's a connecting molecule and it governs over the ejaculatory reflex. It governs over conception by causing a quivering of the uterus to bring the sperm up towards the openings of the fallopian tubes. It of course governs over the uterine surges, these these, uh, often painful contractions of the uterus to push the baby down and out into the world. It also governs over the fetal ejection reflex. It governs over breast milk letdown from the breast tissue itself. This love hormone it is flooded. It's flooding the woman's body, the baby's body. The dad is feeling this oxytocin. The whole room is, is filled with love when a baby is born in a less interventive way where it's quiet, the lights are low. You're not asking this, this birthing woman you know, obscure questions about her medical history while she's you know, having these active surges. If we can imagine a world in a generation or two where that one-third of C-sections, and by the way, one-third of all pregnancies in hospitals are intervened and induced, meaning we get labor going before the body and the baby are ready. If we continue on this trend and the, the you know, 95% of our, of our new healthcare workers are all administrative and they're not thinking about this and being present with the birth, then we're going to have in one or two generations, whole uh, cohorts of children that grow up into adults, not having even been born into love. And when we look at our world around us, there's a lack of connection. There's a lack of compassion. There's like a lack of love and light. There's all fear and stress and, and, and isolation and scarcity. That's the world we're going to get if we continue to intervene in this way. And when you get somebody on the phone 
who is perhaps critical of, hey, this can't work, or aren't you worried about this, or aren't you whatever? It's like, yeah, we, we, are, we are a little bit worried about that. But if we don't do anything, it's just going to keep going in that direction. So it really requires us to continue to have conversations with the, the most critical people, the people that want to see this shut down, whether it's for their financial incentives at their job, or they just seem to feel like you know these weekend warriors on Instagram that, that, that want to take away from you because of some past trauma, and they're projecting that trauma that they had in the hospital while they were giving birth, projected onto you. The conversations have to happen one at a time. And by us announcing this loud and proud, we're not asking permission. We're not saying, hey, is it okay if we do this? We're saying, here's what we're doing. Come and talk to us about it. That's really what this is all about. So would you say the system has gotten wind of what you're doing and maybe don't like it very much? Maren, do you want to share? <laughs> <laughs> wow. So as we said, this has not actually manifested yet. It is not physically happening yet. We have a beautiful website, IndieBirthSanctuary.org. We have an amazing trailer, so feel free to watch and share. When we first released this information, because that's all it is right now, a trailer information, we assume that it was shared around as people do. And about a week later, I received a letter in the mail from the Board of Nursing in Kentucky And the letter had been carbon copied and Nathan received a copy and our other colleagues also received a copy. However, the letter was addressed to me and it said that I was not allowed to be a midwife here. It was a cease and desist order. Um, I was not allowed to be a midwife here and I was not allowed to have a midwifery school. And that's all it said. And I ignored it. Is that where you reside or was that another state stepping in? We both live in Kentucky. So you're, you're both in Kentucky and that was where the letter originated. That right. was where the letter originated. And the board of nursing is responsible for licensing midwives. So that makes sense, but they have no jurisdiction over me. And there was no ultimatum. It was simply a letter to scare us, yep. which of course it did not. And is actually sort of funny in a way, because it's probably just a whole bunch of jealous Jealous nurse midwives, you know, who don't want to see something like this happen. But anyway, that was what happened. I think your idea couldn't be more timely. Can you imagine how, you know, for those of us that have been paying attention on some level, going to the hospital had become a problem. And for me, this has been 20 years or more. Now, the main perception of most of the world before 2020 was, well, this is just how it is. You know, I don't think about it one way or the other. I've got to go where I've got to go. After 2020, so many people lost faith. Rose and I were talking about the numbers of nurses that said they're forcing me to do this thing I don't want. And I mean, it's overwhelming, whether it's people going to the facility that lost all faith in the system or people working within the facility that lost all faith. And so my idea is that you guys couldn't be positioned in a better position for a new idea. Because I think where we exist right now, it is wholly about new ideas. And therefore, the system, as was shown by the Nursing Board of Kentucky, <laughs> is going to work overtime trying to squash new ideas. Um, but if I'm, if I'm right about where we are and the researches that I've done, uh, our so-called virtue should be leaving 25% headed for 50% in this portion of the era we reside in. 
And that too shows that this is all about new ideas. Right now, new ideas are the most welcome thing there could be. Yeah. And I'll add to that, Carl. I think that was beautifully said. I'll add to that, that a part of what Marin was describing before, where there's this uh, intuitive sense you know, there was a great paper written by an anthropologist, and she's also a midwife. A midwife her name is Robbie Davis Floyd. She wrote a paper called "Intuition as Authoritative Knowledge in Homebirth Through Midwives," and she really has a compelling argument there that midwifery really uh, balances out the clinical um, experience and perhaps even you know research-based evidence with their intuitive sense of when things are going well or not going well, regardless of the monitors and all this other stuff that we like to pretend works. We never validated continuous fetal heart rate monitoring for babies, even though it's nearly universal in the hospital setting. Midwives in the home use a lot of intuition. Marin has used a lot of intuition in the birth of her own babies. And I, as a doctor, I have developed an intuitive sense of when I think things feel right and in alignment with this you know, birthing woman and when they don't. You know, I'm thinking about so many things as you go down this road, but the the other thing with Marin, she's had 10 children. Yeah. (laughs) Is there a better expert trained in some hospital somewhere than a woman who has had 10 children? I don't think so. I mean, I'm not so sure. (laughs) Yeah. The experience of that alone, but that's the other thing. Um, If I'm not mistaken in some parts of the world, like if I was going to ask you guys, in a way, what we're talking about almost feels me, makes me feel like back to the future, which is so much of everything right now. Like we got to act like we're the apex of everything that technology, you know, we got to get back to a more sane time. I mean, in the 1800s, we were probably closer to something acceptable than we are now. And what I noticed yeah. is it used to be is a lot of women were involved in the birthing process. You know why? Because women have experience with it, which is not to say that a man couldn't do the same thing. But what we actually see in the hospitals is pretty much a patrimony for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's right. And, and I think that a big part of that, we talked about this in one of my past episodes, is that you know, as our cosmologies have changed, women have kind of risen in the healthcare or the healing professions, and then they fall whenever our cosmologies have changed and women have become devalued. The intuitive sense that a woman like Marin brings to the conversation is all that I need to know to invite Marin to take care of me because she, I know that she's tapped into that intuitive sense. Now, the reason I even brought that up is that the types of clients that Marin and I attend to in birth are those types of clients that are not looking for permission. They're not looking for us to say you can or can't do something. And I can't tell you how many people reach out to me when I rattle the cage of the, the medical industrial complex or an OBGYN, you know, commenting on something they said about interventions in childbirth. I can't tell you how many people said, I love what you said, but my doctor wouldn't let me do that. Well, the word permission, the word allow, those types of words are not really like, that's not going to be the type of people that are attracted to this type of project. The type of people that are that are attracted to this type of experience are those people who intuitively feel like there's more to this than a medical procedure. And that's hard because we've been conditioned over centuries now to outsource our power to uh, religious leaders, to mom and dad, to, um, uh, to the new cult of medicine, the doctors in white coat, these, these new priests, outsourcing that power to other people and not accepting responsibility, not only for your decisions, but the outcomes of those decisions. That you know that that is deep conditioning, and and when I speak to doctors about their own births, they actually agree with me. They actually are like, yeah, I really, what you say really makes sense, but I just can't do it like that. Like I'm just, it's it's out of fear, it's out of 
this conditioning, but deep inside that little nugget gets placed. It gets, it, it's, it gets set, situated in there and it grows and their doubts start to set in. Why am I doing these things in childbirth? Why am I doing these unnecessary surgeries? Why am I not getting paid $18 million a year and instead only making $300,000 a year? Well, walks, you know, it sends me emails once in a while about how great we're doing financially as an organization. Why? You know, it starts to set in those little seeds of doubt, but that conditioning for many of us is decades. It may be our entire life. Ever since in kindergarten, somebody made you raise your hand to go and pee. You've been conditioned to ask for permission. And once you've, you've started to really wrestle with that conditioning and intuitively you start to get a sense that something isn't right here, that's when they start to drift towards us. And we say, we see you, we get you, we feel who you are. Let's make some changes. We're not going to ask permission. We're just going to make the changes because we are living human beings that have rights you know, in and of themselves. That money, large amounts of money, is the vast majority of the control system. I was going to say, what he's unmasking here is the corporation, isn't it? Yeah. The corporation has no concern for human concerns or even an idea of a customer if he wanted to be so bland as to use that word, which we should not. What it does is it looks at the bottom line. It has bylaws that say we will make more next year and the year after that. And the year after, at no time does a corporation ever examine itself and say, which is an oxymoron, as if a corporation could. The individuals running the corporation will never look at the corporation and say, boys, girls, we've done it. We've hit the plateau of the best we could possibly operate. We're freezing right now. We will change nothing because we have reached the best we can do. And so the onset of this lack of faith is being openly flouted in so many spiritual traditions that now call what we're doing in the West in terms of medicine and science as a religion. From my personal point of view, the scientism, which is in fact a religion, is my view is that what religion is is spirituality gone wrong because as the hospital tries to hijack what's going to happen to you, a religion does the same thing. Your decision-making process gets overrun by what the religion says you can do. In other words, it severs your relationship to the very things we've been talking about. But here's, here's a little thing I'd like to point out. I don't know if you're aware of it. I love that the board from the state of Kentucky found the trash can and that you couldn't care less. And here's why. People like to point at Crowley and the Luciferianism and all the words they want to give what the ruling corporations are running by. Here's one of their tacit foundations that they work from. Do what thou will and let that be the whole of the law. I am a free man, free woman, accountable to nobody. And if someone gets in my way, I can kill them. Okay, that's the top level thinking. Right below that in a sub bullet point, it says, and there will be slaves. In the action that I've seen you two express, you have removed yourself from possibly being that sub-bullet point or what they would view as a slave. In other words, we do what we want and these little weaklings that don't know any better and don't stand up for themselves and just go do what they're told, we will consider them as our slaves. And I think it's critical. And I think that that is really the dividing line of where we've been and where we're about to be. Everything about where we're about to be is probably going to be geared on we're in charge, we're the authority, and we just told you to do this. And I think what you guys are expressing here is really the only way forward around it. No, we're not asking permission. We've worked out what we consider to be correct or the best we can do, and we're going to endeavor to this end. Anyhow, I know there's not a question in there. Yeah. 
No, go ahead, Maren. Maren, I'm sure you want to comment on that. That's perfect. Right. We're not asking for permission. And also, it's not a fight in my mind. I'm not saying that maybe they don't perceive it that way, but in my mind, there's no conflict. And I'm very intentional and deliberate about that because to make it one and to enter into the war gives that energy, right? And gives them validation and trying to prove this or that about what we're doing. It's just turning the other way to me and saying like, I only have energy for one thing. And that thing is the new, I have energy to create. I do not have energy to fight. Well, on the face of it, you're recognizing that you are a human being granted the divine spark of life from the highest court. If we should use such a word, which we shouldn't, but we will, because there are courts here that try to express their will. And just in making that decision, you point out, you know, you have no authority over me. And that's what's so laughable about the letter you got. The nursing state board thinks it has jurisdiction over you. Right. You want to show me that law? Jurisdiction over me. (laughs) Yeah. You you want to show me the law that makes that true? Or, you know, it's just, it's these scare tactics, which is what led us completely into COVID. That's right. And the example that I give every time we talk about it is I recognized that if I put on a mask and covered my spirit, that I couldn't live with myself. Literally, I had self-loathing if I did such a thing. And when I went out, I wouldn't do it. And they started throwing me out of places. And I would ask, where's your authority to do this? Well, there's a mandate. And I said, a mandate's not a law. Show me the law. Where's your authority to do this? Well, the governor said, and I said, the governor's not a dictator. The governor can't dictate anything to me. They said, well, the president. And I said, the president's not a dictator. And every time the conversation came around to the CDC, at which point I said, the CDC is a corporation, not a governing body. And yet all these people got in line like good little sheep and pushed because of the perception that they were not in charge of their own existence. Amen. Yeah. And I I do think that people, you know, people usually like these terms, like they're waking up in this and that. It's more than waking up. It's more than intellectualizing why this project is good. It's a feeling. Do you think things went really well over the past couple of years? I'm not asking you guys. It's a rhetorical question. Do you think it was reasonable how your mom and dad died? Do you think that things are going well in our maternity care system? If you really believe that things are going splendidly, then onward, like do keep doing you. But there's a growing body of people who this conditioning, these scare tactics, they've, you know, they've started to overstep their boundaries, these three-letter organizations. People have started to realize, huh, something doesn't feel right. What you're telling me is not in alignment with my direct experience in life. And that has been enough for people to start. It's, it plants that little seed of doubt. And that's the beginning of unraveling this deconditioning. Uh, it, it can't be done. We can't train midwives like that. We can't attend those types of births. The doctors say it's not allowed. Like all of that type of language starts to fade away. And you'll hear in multiple conversations that Marin and I have had, we are never asking permission. We are never permitting something to happen under our care. We are providing counseling. We're providing compassionate care. We're providing a little bit of a safe place for them to express their fears, their gratitude, their intuitive sense about things. And then we support them in, the, in their way. That is vastly different from the assent that we see or implied consent that you see in the hospital system. Most people already feel this. We're just giving them permission to feel in a little bit deeper. 
Okay, I'd like to quickly try to use an idea to express why I think what you guys are about is so important. Anyone who's followed this channel knows how I feel about cymatics. I think it is one of the most important, hate to call it a science, but I will, so people know what I'm getting at. I think it is one of the most important foundational things that we quit paying attention to. And while we can demonstrate why a marshmallow is soft, and concrete is hard using cymatics, we can also demonstrate why that flower is purple and this one is red, or the number of petals, or anything. And people like Dr. Emoto showed, look, we can embed feelings, intention into this water, and look how this love intention is a beautiful geometry, and look how this hate intention, not so much. Now roll that over to the, the surgical, clinical hospital room. What is the vibration in there? Mm. What is the cymatic reality of what's going on as the new life comes in? And I don't know if either one of you want to get on that for a second. We're just about to come to the top of hour one, but it's a, isn't that a good way for people to try to think about what's actually being expressed here? I can uh, I can chime in. I, I've I've studied cymatics. I'm also studying anthroposophic medicine and there's quite a bit of that type of language is really imbued within your reskilling yourself through some of these other modalities. And one thing I want to remind people is we struggle with the question of what is life in medicine. If you can't answer that question, everything that comes after that is on a faulty foundation. Anthroposophic medicine, chimatics, a lot of the uh, experiences of of you know somewhat fringe research into communication with plants, how plants respond to threats. I mean, all of that that whole body of of literature is really kind of compelling. And if you consider chimatics alone, and you look at the development of an embryo, two cells come together, they create an embryo, and then they divide, 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 divide a million times, and now you've got a couple trillion cells that are all moving in orchestration around one another. They're bumping into each other. They're nudging one another out of the way. They're, they're cooperating to form a, a, a living being that has a functioning heart and circulatory system and nervous system and everything else. You can watch this on videos of a zebrafish embryo, where it, which has a very, very short gestational period. It, it rapidly divides and you can very quickly see a zebrafish form. If you look at that and you watch how these cells are moving, in these very extraordinary three-dimensional patterns, and then you look at some of the more uh, advanced chimatics videos, it is no different. There is something about the field that provides the framework whereby these cells are getting into position. Medicine doesn't have an alternative. They don't even ask the question of what is life, but that is life. And when you look at a chimatics plate and some of these incredibly, and it doesn't even, not even on a plate, but if you actually take a glob of water, or I think more appropriately, a fourth a sort of structured water, like almost like a gel, and you run a, an electric current through it and vibrate that water, these incredible patterns appear that look very, very much like the embryologic development of a zebrafish or what we can presume uh, in, in a human embryo. That is really the essence of what we're trying to produce within the sanctuary, is the right vibrational frequency in order for this experience to unfold in the na most natural way possible. It's a huge deal. We're going to wrap up hour one. I'm going to ask you both to quickly just give out your contact again, but I will point out in my home, I got into a point a few years ago where frequencies were bothering my ears. I heard ringing. I heard geek, 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 all kinds of weird noises all the time. And I set about convincing myself that I knew how to re-imprint my house. And I had to convince myself because theoretically I knew that it was correct, but in reality, I hadn't quite come around to knowing I could do it. I did do it. 
I did it with things like a positive frequency core generator, which we've had people on. I did it with crystals. I did it with geometry. I did it with everything that I placed around the house with the simple idea is that the vibrational rates make everything. And so how much more important would it be when a new life is coming in? But Nathan, quickly tell folks where they can find you and your work. Yeah, belovedholistics.com. You can find my podcast there. It's called the Holistic of a Joanne podcast. I have a PRP fertility program I just launched. It takes into account the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual aspects of conception and uh, over a 60 to 70 day program with multiple practitioners, multiple different lab tests, functional medicine, kind of the whole deal at a fraction of the cost of IVF. That's uh, my new program I just launched there. Um, You can also find all of my other services at that website. Uh, Marin, please quickly tell folks where they can find you and your work. Go to IndieBirth.org. You can find information about our childbirth course called 13 Moons, our doula academy, IndieBirthMidwiferySchool.org for the Radical Midwifery School. My podcast is called Taking Back Birth and Instagram, IndieBirth. All right, there it is. That's the end of hour one of episode 480 with Jason Lindgren, Nathan Riley, and Marin Green. We're going to take a short break, come back for hour two and get into it once again. And I would ask a simple question as we close down. Is there anything more important to our future than the bursts that are occurring now? If there is, I'd like to see it in a comment. Is there anything more important to our future than the young lives that are coming in to people, the next generation, if that's the right word, but it's not. With that, the first hour is free to everybody at pro777radio.com. That is C-R-R. OW777radio.com. Members will know to log in for the full member episode. All members get access to Shoot the Moon, the movie that Jason made about all my scope work. Uh, Also, members will have access as I get into shooting with my new pretty huge solar telescope that I saved up for, which I will be filming with coming into spring when it finally warms up here. With that, I'd like to wish everybody listening a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. There it is, man. Cheers.
is the enemy of knowing.